This is Radical Love Life, an ongoing series of podcasts and special events where we explore faith outside the boxes. Hosted by Mark Delcom and Kelly Wilson. So, hey, Kelly. I am freaking awesome as always. And you, my friend? I am very good. Very good. Thank you. It's a sunny day and it's a little, it's a little warmer than I would expect for December 15th, but uh, enjoying the enjoying the weather, enjoying the day. Um, yeah, I am too. I'm super excited. You know, this weather, you're right. It's a, uh, it's nice to see a sunny day in the fifties here up in uh, New York. So we'll take it, you know, it even gives uh, Santa Claus a chance to, uh, to work on his uh, tan before he uh, hops in the sleigh. And that's coming up. That's right around the corner. Yeah, Back it is. In- yeah, it is. 10 yeah, days. We're going to go get a tree. Yeah. We don't even have a tree yet. Uh, why? You don't have a tree? No, no. I think we're going to go get one today. All right. You make that a priority. So Yeah. Must 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 observe the pagan chaining down the tree ritual as part of our Christian. Oh, holiday. my goodness. <laughs> that, sounds like, that sounds like another episode for us at some point to, uh, to break indeed, down that. Indeed, indeed. But that's not why we're here for this episode. So, Kelly, my uh, dear friend, what do we talk about today? Um, well, today we have a guest with us who I'm very excited to talk with. Um, his name is Thomas J. Ord, uh, and he is from the Northwind Theological Seminary, um, and he directs the Center for Open and Relational Theology, which uh, I'm very interested in learning more about what open and relational theology is. Um, and his most recent his most recent book, which I've been reading, is The Death of Omnipotence and Birth of Amipotence, which is something that we'll also be talking about. Good, because you just said a word I don't even know. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, we're the business of, you know, inventing inventing terminology. We can do that. Um, so anyway, uh, Tom, thank you so much. We're, we're really happy that you're here today. Thank you for joining yeah. us. Thanks for the invitation. I'm looking forward to this. Absolutely. Tom, it's great to meet you, my friend. And uh, welcome to Radical Love Live. Uh, I, I, all kidding aside, I, you know, looking forward to uh, doing the research on you. And uh, uh, when Kelly said that uh, we were going to uh, get a chance to have a conversation with you, I was like, wow, open relational um, theology. That is new to me, as well as that other word that I can't really pronounce. So uh, <laughs> I'm really, I, I think our listeners are going to love this conversation. So with that, Kelly, I'm going to flip it back over to you because um, I think you've got some questions to get us started, right? Sure, sure. Yeah. Um, well, uh, Tom, just to start off with, and you know, the, we start a lot of conversations this way to, to ground ourselves is just, if you can tell us a little bit about your spiritual background and, and where you are now. Yeah, I grew up uh, in a little farming town in eastern Washington state. My parents were both very active in the local church of the Nazarene I accepted Jesus into my heart many times as a young uh, child. I was someone who took uh, my faith seriously and eventually became pretty evangelistic uh, mm-hmm. and went into college seeking to be a minister and then um, had a crisis of faith and was an atheist for a while. My return to belief in God was primarily through intellectual means as I tried to square my search for meaning and my intuitions about love with the world I lived in. And um, I eventually went on to become an ordained elder in the Church of the Nazarene and, you know, theologian, author, all those sorts of things. Oh, very cool. 
Very cool. Um, it's and for some of our guests who may not know this, I know that the Church of the Nazarene has come up a couple times. I'm, I I grew up in the the Church of the yeah. Nazarene myself. Uh, is part of the the Wesleyan Methodist holiness movement. So it kind of traces its way all the way back to Methodists and John Wesley, but kind of filtered through the um, the the lens of the holiness movement that got really hot in the early. Uh, early 1900s, a lot of dom- denominations trying to be holier than the next one, and different <laughs> expressions of yep. what that what that meant. Yeah, the Church of the Nazarene broke away from the United Methodist Church because they thought the Methodists were too liberal. They were smoking and going to dances. They watched <laughs> baseball games and things like that. So one way to think of the Church of Nazarene is kind of a conservative backlash to Methodism. And even today, it's more conservative than most Methodist uh, churches. Yeah, I so think I, I think ask, I've, oh, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. ahead. No, I was just going to say, I, I, I think I brought this up on the show before. But one time, my, my kid and I were watching the movie Footloose. Oh, yeah. And, and they said, I can't imagine a church and a town where they wouldn't allow dancing. And I'm like, let me tell you about Nazarene youth group. So anyway, that's all. Yeah. I went to a Nazarene college and people got kicked out of college for going to dancing. So yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. So here was where I was going to, and I was butting in with my question here because you yeah, know, yeah. I'm not, I'm not very familiar with Nazarene uh, denomination. So in the, in the big, big landscape of, Protestant denominations on a scale of one to 10, one probably being Episcopal, yeah, because that's something I know being Episcopalian myself. Where are the, where's the Church of Nazarene in that, in, in, using that uh, as a context? And one being liberal or one being like, what, what, what's the- Yeah, one being pretty progressive liberal as, as Episcopalians. Like, you know, we're, we're pretty, pretty dang progressive. Yeah. And 10 being like the Amish or something like that. Okay, let's go with that. Sure. Uh, yeah. And about this. Yep. Yep. Azarines are probably six or seven, maybe. Mm. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. They're they're definitely on the conservative side of things. Yeah. Um, you would, if you went into a, a typical church of the Nazarene, it would feel like a lot of evangelical Southern Baptist churches in its feel for worship. And, um, you know, it, we're not going to use King James Bible or something like that. But in terms of social issues, whether that be alcohol or queer issues or things like that, um, we're pretty conservative. In fact, I recently saw a poll from Pew that ranked uh, the last the, the uh, denominations and how many the highest percentage of people who voted Republican. And the only group that was more Republican than the Church of Nazarene were the Mormons in terms of their voting. So that gives okay. you an idea of where they are sociopolitically. Now, the contents. I'm not a representative of that. So you'll find in our conversation, I'm an outlier, but that's the, the group that I'm a part of. I appreciate and, that. Yeah. And, and on that point, we may want to jump ahead. Um, it's something we were going to talk about later, but um, for anyone who's listening, who's heard, just heard a red flag about, the Nazarene stance on queer issues. Um, Tom, I know you, you've done some writing about the, um, the, the Nazarene church and their stance on LGBTQ 
um, issues. And it sounds like it's actually gotten you in a little bit of trouble um, or, or at least controversy. I, I don't want to speak out of school there, but um, maybe yeah, want to um, give us a little insight in that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we yeah. like travel makers here. So go ahead, Tom, tell us all about it. <laughs> yeah. I, I want to see the church of Nazarene become fully LGBTQ plus affirming mm. and have been doing that, advocating for that change in a public way, including um, recently co-editing a book with my daughter uh, called Why the Church of the Nazarene Should Become Fully LGBTQ Plus Affirming. It has 90 plus essays from people from current or former Nazarenes making that argument. And of course, in a conservative denomination, um, the backlash is pretty strong. So I've been through one hearing and I'm also scheduled to go through another trial here. I'm not exactly sure when the date is, but anytime, sometime soon. So I guess that's trouble. That's trouble, my friend. So when you say trial, what what charges are you being brought up on? Uh, teaching doctrines contrary to the denomination. Our denomination has a stance on human sexuality that um, says basically that uh, queer behavior is opposed to the gospel. And I want to change that so that queer behavior doesn't understood that kind of way. So the way I usually say it is that orientation, identity, and healthy sexual behavior for LGBTQ plus people is appropriate and compatible with the gospel. And that's what gets me in trouble. Wow. Amen, brother. And Godspeed in that. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. There's de- yeah. There's definitely a need there for, um, you know, for voices to create bridges between a traditional understanding of sexuality and a more modern understanding of sexuality. Cause there are a lot of people who have kind of scriptural, you know, understandings that they just can't get over. They're like, if you can't yeah. somehow explain a different way of interpreting Romans one, then I'm out of the conversation. So, yeah. Um, so we're grateful for scholars like you that are, you know, helping to unpack some of that so that people can um, maybe get a little deeper understanding. Yeah. Yeah. Especially Tom, because you're coming at it as a, as Kelly just said, as a scholar, somebody that's inside that church, uh, a parent, and also as an ally, you like you're, you know, a cisgender straight dude parent here. And, and so you bring that all together. That's a, that's a pretty powerful uh, um, commission you've got going for you. So thank you. That's yeah. really powerful. But it seems, I mean, because I was grew up in uh, not being an affirming person, I changed my mind about 30 years ago, but well, um, I can understand why people have the views that they have. Uh, yeah. And I also think when it comes to making the case for full inclusion, I think there is a, a role for, let's say, the scholars, the theologians and biblical scholars. But most people I know change their mind because a friend or their child or someone they know comes out. So there's that dimension that I think needs to be emphasized as well. Yeah, well said. So Tom, um, I want to ask you a question that you, in your introduction, talking about your um, growing up in uh, the Church of the Nazarene, you said you had a crisis of faith. Yeah. Yeah, so can you share a little bit about that? Just well, curious. I used to, when I was in college, I used to be one of these annoying people who would sit next to you on a plane and say, hi, I'm Tom. I'd like to introduce you to Jesus Christ. I would oh. go door to door with tracks. I was a part of Campus Crusade for Christ. I took 
my faith really seriously because I thought well, people's ultimate destinies were on the line. And, mm -hmm. you know, I didn't want people to go to hell. So I also came from a free will tradition, the Methodist Nazarene. We think people have a choice over the matter, so they're not predestined. So it behooved me to get out there and share the good news and give people a choice. So I was doing that. And then uh, I took a course in philosophy of religion while in college. And for the first time, really took seriously smart atheists, agnostics, people from other religious traditions. Because, you know, as a, a young evangelist reading the scriptures, you know, I was taking religion a lot more seriously than most people. So I could out argue most folks that I talked to. But these people and the, the people that I read, they were super smart. And because I took them seriously, um, their arguments kind of pulled the rug out from underneath me. In fact, I remember coming to pick up my fiance to go to dinner one evening and her getting in the car and me looking at her and saying, I just can't believe anymore. And uh, we were both religion majors getting ready to graduate. I wasn't uh, an atheist or an agnostic for very long because um, I kept at the quest to try to make sense of things. And I eventually came to think it was more plausible than not that there is a God. And my fundamental uh, basis for that belief were two issues. One was my search for meaning. I didn't think there could be ultimate meaning in life if there wasn't something like a ground of meaning that most people call God. And secondly, I had these deep intuitions about love that in some sense, love was the answer, that I ought to be a loving person and everybody else ought to be loving. And I couldn't make good sense of those intuitions if there wasn't something like an ultimate lover or lure of love or something like that, that again, most people call God. So based on those very fundamental notions, I slowly started piecing back together a theology that I thought made sense that I now call open and relational theology which we're going to get into. So uh, you were deconstructing before that word existed. Yeah. Well, actually, <laughs> I, I, my story is two deconstructions. That's mm. the first one. Mm. And then the second one came when I was in graduate school, when I actually read the work of Jacques Derrida, the, the kind of the father of deconstruction. And that mm -hmm. second one was more about having confidence in language to express uh, ultimate truth. And when I read Derrida seriously, I thought, okay, I can't really say that language is going to give me the ultimate truth about reality. And that, that threw me for a loop for a while. Was Derrida who, the one who came up with the idea of the, like the first naivete and the second naivete? Like you don't know anything, then you really know stuff. And then the oh, more you know, Leotard. you realize that you don't. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's, uh, um, oh, I almost said Leotard, but that's not right. That's, uh. Oh, what? Yeah, it's another guy. I forgot his name. But anyway, That's yeah. Right. I got a computer in front of me. I can, I've got the world's knowledge at my fingertips. I can okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The guy you Google. <laughs> That's right. Oh, why can't I remember him? Uh, he's more famous as a herm hermeneutics person. Uh, anyway. Anyway. Yeah. Um, maybe this is a good transition into uh, talking about open and relational theology and Great. what that, yeah. what that means. 
Yeah, it's a really broad label under which reside a variety of people and movements and ideas. But what they share in common are two fundamental uh, beliefs. One belief is that we live in an, a relational universe, that we are interrelated with one another and with the earth, and that the God who exists is also relational. In other words, God's not just giving, but also receiving. God's not only influencing, but being influenced. And that might not sound like too radical of an idea to some of the folks who are listening to this, but if you know something about the history of Christian theology and also parts of Islam and Judaism, you'll know that most of the major Christian thinkers do not think God is relational. They don't think we have any effect upon God. Nothing we do influences God. So that's a departure from the tradition. And then the word open in open and relational theology refers to God moving through time into an open and yet to be determined future. So God not only doesn't predestine everything, but also God can't foreknow everything from all eternity. The future is open and undecided, even for God. And uh, that those two big ideas, there's other things like, you know, affirming creaturely freedom, emphasis upon love, that sort of stuff. But those two big ideas uh, mark open and relational thinkers as different from a lot of other folks. Wow. That, that whole notion of just the God not determining the future and maybe not knowing the future is really alien to at least kind of the what I'm familiar with, with the Western Christian notion of God, you know, the potter who makes you and how does the clay question the potter and who, <laughs> you know, who are we to ask the creator of the universe why he did something? That's, that's a very yeah. different approach. That's right. And it, it, the implications are wide uh, ranging, you know, for one thing, it says that if the future is open and we have an effect on God, then our lives matter. Our choices matter. Things aren't already set in stone. And that means we have genuine moral responsibility and how to live well with one another, how to treat the earth, etc. So um, I think it actually fits the way most of us live our lives. But you're right that it's different from most of Western theology. So Tom, just listening to your um, description, of open and relational theology. I almost want to raise my hand right away and say, I think I'm one of those. <laughs> Good. Um, and it's beautiful to hear it in a, in a language that I can understand because, you know, my own personal journey of faith with its many crises and all of that, I would not trade in for the world, right? They are, they are something that has led me to this very moment in this conversation over, especially over the last um, 12 years. But yeah, like I just fumbled because I didn't know where else to, to, you know, I knew what I didn't like, but I didn't, you know, and so I would just keep doing what I was doing and what I continue to do. But it's amazing that this is actually out there. Um, Kelly's word alien is definitely an appropriate word because I thinking is, are, are there any major denominations that currently embrace an open and relational theology? 
not officially, but you'll find open and relational folks in most denominations as minority voices. So um, you'll find Interesting. probably a higher percentage in denominations like uh, United Church of Christ or uh, United Methodist. Uh, but you can find them, you know, even in some, there's a few Southern Baptists out there, open and relational, definitely a, a small number. Uh, so yeah, they're, you can find them in lots of places. So can I ask a question um, that if, if God does not know what the future holds because we're relevant to it and we are united in this dance of, of creation, then does that, where does the omnipotence come in and, and does that fracture that? And is that a part of the problem where, you know, folks that are in a traditional sense would like, ah, this, nope, nope, does not work for me. Yeah. Well, I think there's two words that are related, but different that we probably should, should, uh, I should try to sort of tease out. Yeah. One word is omniscient. And that's the question of what God knows, and it means that God is all-knowing. The other is omnipotent, and that's the question of God's power. And it, omnipotent is usually understood as God having either causing everything or having the ability to control at any time. So you guys are probably somewhat familiar with the age-old debate between Calvinists and Arminians. And Calvinists typically think of God as omnipotent in the sense of exerting all control, being the sole cause of everything, at least one ver version of, of Calvinism. Uh, whereas Arminians want to say, no, we have free will. God doesn't predestine, predetermine. You know, we have real choice. An open relational person says, we agree with the Arminians on this, but we would add that God also doesn't know the future. So we want to say God does know everything that's knowable. God knows the past mm -hmm. and the present, but there is no future yet to be known. There's only a realm of possibilities. So God knows all the possibilities, but God's not sure how our conversation is going to end today. The God knows some probabilities and possibilities, but that future is open. There's nothing yet to be known by God or anyone else. So if you have a classic view of omnipotence, it says God does everything and then predestined everything, then of course the future is settled and you know there's no real free will. But you could have a view of omnipotence that said God doesn't determine everything, just some things or just those parts of reality that don't have freedom. Like let's say some people will think that uh, worms aren't free or cells or amoeba aren't free. And so they might say God controls those, but higher organisms or humans and chimps, maybe they have freedom. So I'm kind of wandering there. Wow. Sorry. No, no, no. You're enlightening that, in your wanderings here. So, <laughs> yeah. well, and one of the things that I found fascinating from uh, reading the death of omnipotence is uh, that there's um, that there's a scriptural basis for this because somebody might be listening to this and be like. Well, you're kind of going off the track from, yeah. you know, what God's word really says about this. And that, um, you know, you're not the first you make to say that, Kelly. <laughs> <laughs> really, you think. <laughs> the, but the, you make the case that there isn't the biblical support for 
um, God's omnipotence and omniscience that many people may read into the text. Right, right. And this is something in this book, The Death of Omnipotence, that really has caught people by surprise when they start reading this book. Um, and it's not really a set of claims that I'm making that are like only me saying this. I'm pointing to dozens and dozens and dozens of biblical scholars who've been saying this, just not in a way that people can understand or not in a kind of more uh, accessible kind of way. But the story I tell is the story that says that every time you as a reader of the English Bible come across the word almighty in the Bible, it is a mistranslation of Hebrew and Greek words, a mistranslation of the word Shaddai and the word Sabaoth in Hebrew, and a mistranslation of the word uh, Pantocrator in Greek. Now, the word omnipotent doesn't show up anywhere, or at least in most English Bibles, but Almighty does, and that's a mistranslation. And then I make the even further claim that even the meaning of God being all-powerful or sovereign in the sense of omnipotent, even the meaning isn't in Scripture, that we've come to the text with this view of God in the back of our heads as either controlling everything or at least able to control whenever God wants to, and that the text doesn't require that default view of God. Wow. Wow. That, and that, um, I'm thinking of like all the hymns and the contemporary Christian songs and, you know, all the, that, that may need some revision if they go back, uh, down that road. Um, yeah. And that's one of the things I, I, I have a brief section on that in the book because I, I asked myself, you know, if, if these ideas aren't in the Bible, the, and I mean, the truth is most Christians aren't all that biblically literate anyway, but uh, you know, how is it that so many people, their default view is God is omnipotent or almighty? You know, why is it that when Hollywood wants to do a, a movie about God, they call it Bruce Almighty rather than Bruce All-Loving or something like that? <laughs> uh, and I think one of the answers to that is that the Psalms that Christians especially sing have views of God's power that don't fit with Scripture. That whether they're praise choruses or old hymns, uh, the language isn't helpful. I guess I've never thought about that. Um, and that is a fascinating um, point, right? That we actually are, we learn this through these songs that actually contradicts or doesn't lay into what we would be getting from, um, from well, bi biblical uh, literacy. Um, and take us into narratives that don't exist. Um, yeah, of course. If let's say you're in the Episcopal tradition. Yeah. Um, you're probably going to say the creeds every once in a while. Oh, well, and absolutely. The creeds mm -hmm. start off with yes. something like, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, yes. maker yes. of heaven yes. and earth. The creator yes. of heaven and earth. Yeah, yes. yeah. All that is unseen and seen and unseen. Yes. I mean, Do I you remember I, all the killing. <laughs> <laughs> Probably you remember yeah, I used to. I was a <laughs> yeah, sound technician in a Episcopal church for twenty years, so I I did. Esther, you have a pass on that. I heard it a couple times. Yeah, you have. And for sake of clarity, on that, why I asked that question is because Kelly and I were also confirmed into the Episcopal church at the same time. So 
I'd like to think that we remembered something from from that process. So, yeah, so well, I bring it up in <laughs> I bring it up in part because you know I, I'm I'm a part of a, what we usually call a low tradition church, the Church of Nazarene. So sometimes you know we're 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 not usually saying the creeds. We're singing these you know emotional choruses and praise songs, and we're rocking and rolling on our services and. And sometimes folks from more mainline or more uh, older traditions will say, well, the low church evangelicals, you know, it's all about their emotions and enthusiasm. We've got the creeds. And I say, look, the Mm -hmm. creeds are screwing people up, too, because of the way they think about God's power and their lack of emphasis upon love. So, yeah, it's it's across the spectrum. I like you saying that because I agree. I have a hard time saying the creeds, not because I don't believe in. And the creator, I do, but the the language literally is human language to me. It can't encapsulate and uh, or capture uh, uh, how I feel and how I have a relationship to to the creator. You know that I that I know I love right, especially when it comes for that moment of in the Eucharist is like a, a very transcending experience for me personally. But mm-hmm. but that to that end, because the creed is like yeah, it's it's words and okay, I get it if you say it, but. I don't think I'm being punished if I don't say the creeds. Yeah, yeah. Well, and with you two, with a podcast called Radical Love, <laughs> and with me, a person who I'm a Christian because love is the most important, it actually pisses me off when I'm in church and I'm saying the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed that the word love isn't mentioned even once. No. Not even once. Oh, wow. I'm going to start preaching now here, but this <laughs> Go it really it. makes me angry. Like for me, that's the heart of what it means to be a believer in God and follower of Jesus Christ. As I read the scriptures, it's the heart of the scriptures, even though I recognize some scriptures portray God as unloving. But I think that the dominant witness is a God of love. And then we've got these stupid creeds that don't even mention love. It hisses me off. Sorry. But hey, the back off of but they they do establish that he's light from light and whatever the heck that means whatever that means yeah, <laughs> yeah. what i had i had a whole conversation the other day with a friend of mine who's uh eastern orthodox about mm. the hierarchy of the father son and the holy spirit and who proceeds mm. from whom and that like that's yeah. creating like huge historical had huge mm-hmm. historical impacts to try to put such a Definitely. fine point on it but it's interesting that you're right it doesn't mention love when that's so essential to faith to christian faith right yeah and tom thank you for bringing that up because i've never thought about that until you just shared that so i'm neither i'm thoroughly pissed off as well so (laughs) (laughs) now i'm going to ruin your sunday worship (laughs) my priest will be like where's that word love at last (laughs) so you know it's interesting that um you know, I've I've seen there's kind of like a cottage industry on, you know, TikTok and Instagram reels of uh people who've who've deconstructed so far that they've kind of they've worked their way out of faith. And love is often one of their core arguments, is they're saying, like, if God is a loving God, why are there kids dying from cancer? Why is there war? Why do some people get healed when they pray and some people don't get healed when they pray? You know, how can yep. how can a loving God 
who is also all-powerful and all-knowing, do these things. If that's the formula, then I can't believe it. And they end up abandoning the whole thing. Um, does, does open and relational theology go to address some of those objections? Yeah. What you describe is the number one reason people deconstruct. And I say that not based because I've got a poll, although I do have seen polls that say it's the number one reason people are atheists, but just in the material I've read and the you know people I talk to, it's the number one question. And what I'm proposing in this book, and I've proposed in others, is that if we let go of the idea that God is omnipotent, if we say God simply can't control anyone or anything, then it changes the way we look at these kinds of issues that you mentioned, whether it's children dying or sexual abuse or political decisions that are obviously evil, because then we don't have to say that God is either causing that evil or mm. even allowing it or permitting it as if God could stop it if God wanted to. And that, for many people who read my material, that's the game-changing idea. A God of love who's acting and influential, not up on Mars eating popcorn, watching us from a distance like Bette Midler's <laughs> God, but a God who's actually involved in our lives but never, ever, in fact, can't be controlling. Oh. Wow. Wow. It is so, a game changer. Like I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm just like, I am processing that and oh my gosh. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you're part of the kind of traditions, at least Kelly and I've been a part of, uh, there's a lot of people who will say, well, God doesn't cause evil, abuse, harm, hurt, but God allows it. And mm -hmm. they think that that is supposed to be a good thing. But, you know, we all know that if we have the ability to prevent evil, but we allow it, we're not really being loving people. In fact, I remember getting a, uh, a letter from a woman who had read my book, God Can't, which is on mm -hmm. similar themes from the death of omnipotence. And she wrote and she said, uh, when I was younger, my older brother sexually abused me over and over. Oof. And she said, mm -hmm. um, one time I had this dream. And in the dream, Jesus came next to me and held my hand as I was being abused by my brother. And she mm. said for a couple of days that made her feel okay. But then she realized that Jesus was there and was allowing what was happening. And so she walked away from belief in God because she'd been told God allows or God won't always stop evil. And then she read my book, God Can't, and it like changed her, changed the way she thinks. And that's just one testimony amongst many, many, many others. Oh, that's so sad to have that, that feeling um, that, you know, it, it is a kind of abandonment. That, yes. Uh, oh, it is, or, or like, or, or enslavement. Is it abandonment or is it enslavement? Because you've been taught this, you've, you've, you took this on that, you know, this, very whacked theology that says, uh, you know, it's, uh, this is allowing, and this is your lot and you, this is your, your, you, you must suffer through this. That's right. 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 There are people wow. saying, and, and then there are people trying to explain it away by saying, you know, it's, it's building character. God's right. teaching you a lesson. It's, or even just giving kind of the excuse of like, 
well, free will, you know, God allows free will, therefore God must allow evil. Well, like, well, free will did not create, you know, the tsunami that wiped out my town. I mean, right. you know, God allowed that to happen. Um, or the pandemic, the coronavirus, you know, all that. Yeah. yeah. COVID. Right. Yeah. 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 So I yeah. guess uh, the the follow-up question to all this then is, um, you know, it is what does God do? Right. That within open and relational theology, you know, that you think of like, if, you know, as God is our king, this is the kingdom of God. What's the, what's, what are the principles that are? Yeah. Um, well, and kingdom? as you were introducing uh, today, you were, uh, reading the title of my book, The Death of Omnipotence and the Birth of Amnipotence. And, <laughs> and Mark, I think, was laughing at the word, saying, what is this amnipotent stuff? But uh, that is a word that I invented to try <laughs> to get something to replace omnipotence. Okay. <laughs> so it really is made up. I almost spit out my coffee on that because I was like, I've never heard that word. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. So enlighten us. Go, Tom. Go. <laughs> well, you know, in 2019, I wrote this book, God Can't. And it was helpful to lots of people, but people would say to me, okay, God can't prevent evil single handedly. What can God do? And so in this book, I wanted to give a long explanation of what I think God is up to and doing in the world. And this mm -hmm. word, omnipotence. Emmy is the Latin for love, potence for influence or power. Mm. It's to say, if we start with God's love, then how should we understand God's power? Instead of doing what most theologians do and what most people do, they start with God's power, and then they try to figure out how love fits into that. What if we start with love and say, love wants the well-being of all, ourselves, others, and all creation? And what if we say that love is inherently uncontrolling? So what would uncontrolling love in God look like? Assuming things like God is present to all creation, so an omnipresent God. Assuming that God's not only present, but active in terms of influencing all creation. In terms of God everlastingly existing and always active, present, and influencing creation. And so you start putting these things together, I think we can talk about a really powerful God, so we don't have to think God's a wimp or, you know, watching us from a distance, but we also don't need to believe God is controlling. And if we do that, if we start with love, we can make a great deal of sense of, I think, the way God acts in the world. Wow, wow. So it invites us more into, uh, into like a partnership. Yes. In a way. That's exactly right. We have an essential role to play. I mentioned earlier that uh, classic theology or the, the major thinkers in history like Augustine and Aquinas, uh, they've had a God who's not only omnipotent, but also unaffected by anything we do. Uh, and some of those people today or some of those people in that theological lineage they will say things like, well, God is active in the world and God is inviting us to participate in what God is up to. And that kind of sounds like we have a role to play, but because they retain their view of omnipotence, at the end of the day, our role really doesn't matter. <laughs> God's going to get the job done whether or not we cooperate or not. 
The proposal right. I'm putting on the table is different. It says uh, actually needs us. Yeah. And that I think is a much better way to think. Tom, I love that. Um, I could see where you would get yourself into trouble with a number of Protestant denominations on this, though, because especially for the ones that believe in, um, you know, uh, salvation through um, uh, acceptance of the Lord into your life as your savior. And, and that then sets up uh, a life of justification that all, all things going forward at that point is justified as long as in that. And there's um, you, this, this doesn't fit that very well. Yeah, are you saying it doesn't fit the notion that you make, uh, you, know, you say the sinner's prayer at one point, let's say, and then everything is guaranteed for yeah, that. Everything's point. good. Yeah. I'm good. Yep, yeah, I'm it good. doesn't fit that. Of course, that, that view never fit the way we actually live our lives, does it? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> no, but we see in this current culture how often that's reflected, you know, both in word and deed, right? Um, and how justification takes place to explain away what happens in this world and they'll reflect back on or not reflect, but rely on something that got them there as their justification of which, and, and this in this kind of relationship with, with God, the creator, there's, there is no justification. We have a responsibility. We are, we're held accountable right. for the love that goes. This is, this is relation and relationship here. It's not transactional. Yes. That's very nicely put. And compare that, we'll call it the conventional way of thinking about salvation as, you know, you say the prayer and then everything is guaranteed and from that point over on, I should say. Compare that to the bad views of marriage that so many people have. Like a lot of people think you, you, you say I do, you tie the knot, and of course it's happily ever after. You don't do anything, you know, because it's guaranteed. But those of us who are in relationships know that marriage is hard work. It's a mm -hmm. continuing relationship. And sometimes it's awesome, but sometimes it sucks. It's hard. And um, I think this way of thinking about salvation as ongoing that I'm proposing fits well with our notions of good relationships in the, in the present, including good marriage relationships. That's a great analogy because there is, there's, it's continual work. It's continual choices you choose yes. to engage every day. It's not. Uh, I saw on Instagram the other day, it was a young, um, young Christian couple you know, from a very conservative group that they, they were comparing marriage to opening free play mode on a video game. I was like, oh Lord, you are in for, you are in for some surprises and like, it's going to be happening soon. Wow. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to leave that. I'm just going to leave that there. Um, yeah. One one thing I do want to make sure that we're um, that that we take time to talk about is um, Tom. It's you and some uh, associates or colleagues are um, going out on the road to spread some of these ideas and talk about some of these ideas. Um, and I know that there's uh, there's actually an event um, coming up pretty soon, not far from where we are in the New York City area. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about uh, the the event and who's going to be there yes. and what y'all will be talking about? Yeah, I'd be happy to. It's called God After Deconstruction. Mm -hmm. And Trip Fuller, a good friend of mine, and I are putting together this event and some others in the next couple of years along this theme. The idea is to meet at Drew University February 9th and 10th. 
and uh, talk about what deconstruction is. Uh, we've got about 10 legitimate reasons people deconstruct, and we're going to affirm those and say people are right to deconstruct. But then we're going to propose a different way to think about God that we think overcomes the legitimate issues that people have with God. And uh, we're inviting uh, Catherine Keller will be speaking, John Thetominal. Mm -hmm. Also, we've added uh, Bruce Epperly, who's in the Baltimore area, and then Alexis Lilly, who's uh, there in New York. She just uh, confirmed. So this will be a one and a half day conference at Drew University. February 9th through 10th. And I'm super happy that you two guys are going to be involved. Yes, sir. Yeah. Wait, yeah. Wait. That'll be, yeah. I have a, a, a fondness for, for Drew university. I've, I've taken a couple classes there myself. Um, and uh, for anybody who's in, in the New York city area, it's a short trip uh, away or in the, you know, Northern New Jersey area, Philadelphia area. Um, it, you know, it's definitely worth the trip. Um, and for folks who can't make it, it sounds like there are going to be some additional events down the road. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. This will probably be a 10 city tour in the next couple of years. Um, the next one after this will be in Denver. So not so much in your neck of the woods, but I'm sure we'll be back on the East Coast uh, in the future. Absolutely. And Tom, you're absolutely right. The, um, Kelly and I are, are um, thrilled to death to to uh to partner with you as a, a collaboration in this as a podcast uh, partner and so um for our listeners we'll be engaged going forward so you'll definitely hear from us as we uh uh take on uh this project uh with uh uh this and I, i'm just I'm so excited because you know just even in this conversation um i don't know how somebody wouldn't want to participate in this and uh, because you you're just you're stripping away all of the the chains that hold people back. Like, please, you know, if you've been hurt by church, if you've been hurt by flawed theology, and, you know, um, it, it, it's not about a point, nowhere in this do I get a sense it's about, you know, conversion or, rec you know, like dragging people back into the church. That's not the point of this in any way, shape or form, right? It's not a, it's not an altar call. It's just simply here, let's, let's talk about all of the stuff that we've learned and we're going to deconstruct it and we're going to show you how you build your own basically your own framework, like what I've done. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. a good way to put it. And I would also add that this is, you know, when you people hear Drew University, they might think, oh, another academic conference. But we're mm -hmm. really trying to aim this for a broad audience. So we're trying to stay away from those technical words and the things <laughs> that, you know, aren't, yeah, that drag down the conversation and keep it at a level that everyone can engage. Mm -hmm. Wow. So that's great. That's good. That's kind of part of our ongoing uh, yeah. debate. We've just been talking about that this week about the role of academy in, mm. um, in theology and the, you know, the academicians can, you know, can do some work that sort of trickles down into everyday theology, almost the way they're like, you know, high fashion designers, you know, their work mm. eventually wakes, makes its way down into Macy's, but for everyday people, you shouldn't have to be a, uh, degreed theologian to be able to have some kind of working understanding of your faith. In fact, it probably right. would hold a lot of people back if they felt that that was a necessity. Yeah. Great point. Well, Although that analogy used, you know, Macy's is high fashion for people in Idaho. It'll get to the old Navy eventually. So. Yeah, that's right. Well said. 
<laughs> I, I have to say that because, you know, I, 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 again, what you uh, are creating here um, and taking this, this journey into showing people how to deconstruct uh, and vitamin, inviting them into that is, is what's needed because, you know, these poll after poll after poll, and we see the numbers of the decline in church and participation and people saying, yeah, I'm out. Uh, but yet they say they're spiritual, but not religious. The SBNRs right. are the fastest growing segments, right? And along with the nuns. And I'm thinking, well, that's only because it doesn't work for them. And they are, we're finally getting to the point in our culture where it's okay. And nobody's going to shame you or wag your finger at you because you say, well, yeah, I, this, is not, this is not for me. So, but they're sitting there in limbo. They're just like, well, what do I do now? I'm just yeah. spiritual, but not religious. They have nothing to work with. Yes, that's a great point. And, you know, we're going to be talking about some of the reasons people deconstruct things uh, like, uh, you know, Christian nationalism, the election of mm. Trump has mm. driven so many people away from the mm. church, issues around queer matters uh, that's driven people out of the church. Folks, you know, we've mentioned the problem of evil, but there's related to that is the church abuse that many people have suffered. Um, the questions like religious pluralism, like how can I be of one faith if I know people who are kind and loving of another is, you know, there's only one supposed to be right. What do I do with all the rest? So mm. these are legitimate issues and questions um, that we're going to address. And I think one of the issues that we probably won't address as well as we should or could is the question of how you find community after you've deconstructed. I'm, I don't mm. know that much about your guys' wow, podcast, yeah. but... I'm guessing that some people find in your podcast and other people's podcasts some sense of community, but they probably want something more as well. So that might be a question that you guys can help us try to figure out in some way, because that's a big one. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. We are relational beings and yes, um, aren't designed to just believe on our own in a silo. No. Yep. yep. Definitely not. Um, so, Tom, uh, where can people get more information about the uh, uh, coming up with the project? Well, the uh, information is on Eventbrite, so look at God After Deconstruction. But I'd love to have folks uh, sign up on a newsletter that I send out a couple times a month. And to get to that newsletter, you could go to my personal website, and that website address is my full name, Thomas J. Ord. Uh, middle name is J A Y, last name is O O R D. Okay, sounds great. Right. And we'll also make sure that there's uh, um, information in our social media and oh, great. A, a feature on our website. Um, so people go to radicallovelive.com or um, Radical Love Live on Facebook, Instagram, the being formerly known as Twitter. Uh, you can find some information there. There you go. Uh, by the way, you guys also, have one of the best podcast names of anybody. I mean, Radical Love Live, that's like, what an awesome name. I'm totally yeah. on board. Thank you, Sweet. Tom. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I love that. Um, and I so, also, so, I, okay. I, wanna, I do want to say for anybody at home waiting on pins and needles, it's Paul Ricoeur. Is the, there you go. Yes, thank you. Developer of the <laughs> concept of that. Yes. <laughs> Paul Ricoeur, yeah. thank you for landing that plane for us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I know that some philosopher at home was like, oh, I know this. I know it. <laughs> Will you get back to that? Paul, Paul LaCour. Ricour. R-I-C-O-E-U-R. R -I -C -O -E -U -R. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. There's somebody I don't know. So I'll have to uh, Wikipedia the dude. <laughs>
Um, so I kind of, before we go, Tom, I'm just, I'm filled with questions today. Um, so what do you say to somebody that's a, uh, that is a nun, an atheist, um, um, why would they want to participate in God after deconstruction? Why would they want to be there? Well, most atheists I know, most nuns, uh, SBNRs, um, they still have this sense of transcendence. They still want to live a good life. They still want to be good people. And they still want some kind of relationship with other people. Hmm. And those, I think, are legitimate and important desires. And I think there's a way to understand those desires in a broader framework that may or may not include belief in God. I happen to believe in God, believe in God, but a broader framework that I think not only can help us make sense of things intellectually, but actually can make a difference in the way we relate to one another and think about our lives. There you are. That is an awesome summary. Um, Thank you so, so much for being here. I've I've loved this conversation. Um, I'd love to keep going. Um, and I'm glad that we, that we will, um, you know, in a few weeks after yep. this podcast comes up, uh, we'll be able to uh, carry on the conversation at uh, God After Deconstruction. Yeah, uh, we look we'll forward to that. In the meantime. Yeah. yeah, thanks for the opportunity. You guys are a great podcast host. I've enjoyed the chat. Thank you, Tom. Yeah, it's Thank a, you. It's a labor of love. Thanks for listening to this episode of Radical Love Live, co-hosted by Mark Delcom and Kelly Wilson. All rights reserved. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, and other popular podcast platforms. Go to RadicalLoveLive.com to learn more about us, watch recordings of our live events, and listen to our podcast. We also invite you to check out what Kelly and Mark are doing by going to our websites. Find Kelly at KellyWilson.com and Mark at MarkDilcom.com. This is Radical Love Live where we explore faith outside the boxes.